Amen. Well, thank you, Grant, for, for leading us in those songs. Uh, <clears throat> just so rich with the righteousness of Christ, with who our Lord is, with the great work that he has done. It is overwhelming to, to sing and even more overwhelming to think about, to meditate on those truths. Especially as we, as we get into to Romans today. Um, <clears throat> but before we do that, good morning and welcome. I'm glad that you all are here and that we can come together this morning to, to sing and to hear the word. Uh, Jeff and Tanya had the opportunity this week to get away and relax for a few days up at Hume Lake. Uh, to spend some time with uh, the Steels up there. And also spend some time with Chandler and with Simon. Um, and trust that they are having a wonderful time, and uh, we'll pray for them as they head back uh, to make it back here in time for our members' meeting this evening. Um, I also want to thank Jeff for allowing me to continue on in our series in Romans. I know it's very difficult when you teach through a series to let someone else jump in, especially as we come to our passage today in Romans chapter 3. It really is the crux of the book of sin, the first of the five books within the book of Romans. As Paul finishes his argument against the unrighteousness of the Gentiles as well as the self-righteousness of the Jews. To leave us with the undeniable reality that all mankind is under sin. This series has been very heavy and tough. I know I've been challenged quite a bit by it, and I trust that you have as well. Today's not going to be any lighter. As we, as we get to the, the central uh, <clears throat> focus of Paul's argument, the, the essentially the, the condemnation of all men as we, as we see today. We're going to look, be looking at the doctrines of depra- depravity and absolute inability today. And before we dive into our passage this morning, let's recap where we've been thus far. In in chapter 1, we looked at the condemnation of the Jews, or sorry, of the Gentile world. (laughs) Through God has made um, himself known throughout his creation. He has created everything to give us an image of him, that we would know him, that we would see his power, that we would know his divine attributes. And through this, he leaves every man without excuse. They did not honor him as God, and by their unrighteousness, they suppressed the truth. Because of which, Paul writes that they became futile in their thinking, and their hearts were darkened. They exchanged the truth for a lie and worshipped the creature rather than the creator. So God gave them over. To this, as Jeff has said in previous weeks, the Jews and Paul's audience would have applauded and affirmed, you get him, Paul. You tell those dirty Gentiles what's up. But their demeanor would have quickly changed as Paul shifts his focus in chapter 2 from the Gentile world to the Jews. He begins to point out the hypocrisy for judging the Gentiles for the very same things that they also practice. And moreover establishes that it is the doers of the law and not the hearers of the law who will be justified. As Jeff has talked over the the last several weeks, Paul begins to give us a picture of a Jewish antagonist, one to give objection to Paul's own teaching so that Paul can one by one refute and chop down the pillars of what the Jews were trusting in for their own righteousness. 
We are the chosen people of God, descendants of Abraham. We have the law. We uniquely boast in Yahweh. We know the will of God. We have the sign of the covenant of circumcision. They were trusting in all of these things. But Paul systematically moves from one to the next, refuting so as to remove their comfort and assurances and their self-righteousness based off of these things so that they would come to see their need for Christ. Paul is leveling the playing field. He is working to establish that the Jews and the Gentiles are in equal standing before the Lord. That is, that they are equally sinful and are equally in need of him. As we started in chapter 3 last week, the antagonist asked Paul, what advantage then does the Jew have? What is the value of circumcision? What is the benefit of being a Jew if we are still equally condemned before God? How did any of that make a difference? And Paul responds that they have advantages in every way. They were giving, uh, given everything they needed, and yet they missed the point. They missed the very essence of the things that they had. They missed the very essence of the advantages that they had. All these things, their ethnicity, possessing the law, boasting in God, knowing his will, carrying the symbol of God's covenant, were all good things. They represented the advantages that the Jews had, but these things will save nobody. And that was their folly. They were trusting in externals. They were boasting in their righteousness and on what they had. They were relying not on what they did and not on their hearts before the Lord. Righteousness does not come through external symbols. It comes through obedience and love of our Lord. Jeff challenged us then as believers to not fall into the same way of thinking. That we must not trust in religion We must not trust in a prayer that we said years ago. Not in our church attendance, not in communion, not in baptism, not on a mission trip we did when we were young, and especially not on the sticker on the back of our car. These things do not save you. They're good things, but they cannot save. Symbols on the outside are only valuable when they're matched by an inward reality. You can claim the outward, but if you show no tangible signs of your life, with your life, then you live in hypocrisy. And this was the state of the Jews in Paul's argument. Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 9 to 18 today. Today's passage brings us to the conclusion of Paul's reasoning and our Jewish antagonist is left with little to say. Paul's removed everything that he was trusting in. There's nothing left to argue. And as we jump into this, I want to give you a word of warning. This passage is very familiar to most of us. This is one that we've quoted again and again that when we've shared the gospel with others, this is one of the ones we go to. I want us to to be alert today because it's often that those passages, those familiar ones, are the ones we overlook the most. 
I want us to see the seriousness of the charges that are going to be brought before humanity here, to really contemplate them, to be able to think on them, to understand that this is who we are apart from Christ. Follow along with me in in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greek, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is a scary passage and gives a bleak outlook for mankind. It is something to not be taken lightly. It's something to not be brushed aside. This is Paul's condemnation in a sense of the, of the whole world. But even more than that, this is God's condemnation of the whole world. And we'll see that in a little bit. But if we go back up to verse 9, we have our antagonist's response to Paul's argument. What then? After all this, are, are we Jews no better off? This might be the finale too, or an aha moment for Paul in, in his argument with the Jews. But after losing everything this man has trusted in, this antagonist concedes with his last question on the matter. Are we no better off than the Gentiles then? Paul's answer is simple. No. No, no better off. <clears throat> While they may have had many advantages, they missed the heart of the matter. For from the beginning, they relied on the externals all the while rejecting the very things they represented. And at this point, Paul's pattern of speech becomes very judicial as he brings forth an indictment against the Jews. As he says, for we have already charged that all, both the Jews and the Greeks, are under sin. It's not just the Gentiles or the Greeks under sin, but Paul's indictment on the Jews is that you Jews, just like the Gentiles now, are under sin. He uses this term under sin here. He's not referring to an individual act, but rather the state of being of all humanity. That every single person on this planet throughout all, all of history finds themselves in. Being under sin means they, along with all mankind, are under the penalty as well as under the power of sin. We are completely enslaved and dominated by sin. This indictment is that all are under the power of sin and unable to escape without an outside intervention. Ephesians 2 describes this as being, as being dead. That the very result of this sin is that we are dead before God. We are spiritually dead. There are no exceptions. And it's seen through the tendency of man is always toward wickedness. So we find the Jews, as with the Gentiles, all mankind... Under the bondage of sin, the effects of sin is universal. And thus, the Jews with the Greeks stand accused. 
I want to pause for a moment. This is heavy stuff, right? This is no light thing that we're diving into. And as we go through this, I want you to be encouraged by, by two things. First off, this was our former state. This is where we once were, and we're going to look at that as, as we read in our, in our call to worship this morning, Ephesians 2, that we were dead in our trespasses, but we have been made alive together in Christ. And the second is, is very that, that we have been made alive in Christ, as we sang about this morning. So as we're going through these passages, I need you to have both things in mind, that this was who we were without Christ. This is what the world is without Christ, but there is hope. And what we've sang this morning. <clears throat> so as we continue, so Paul's laid out his indictment that all have sinned. Next come the charges. In verses 10 through 12, Paul follows along with a list of charges against them, beginning in verse 10. Notice he starts off with, as it is written. He's going to quote now from the Old Testament. He's not going to bring his own charges, but rather he's going to bring forth six charges by quoting the words of David in Psalm chapter 14 and Psalm 53, as well as uh, Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. <clears throat> these things are going to demonstrate, these six charges are going to demonstrate the total depravity of the whole world. Just as Paul used the words of Jeremiah and Moses to confront the Jews already regarding their trust in physical circumcision rather than having their hearts circumcised before the Lord, Paul used the words of their other heroes to do the same, of the righteous King David and wise King Solomon to use their words to charge the world, specifically the Jews he's speaking here to, of their sins. So let's look at those charges together. That first charge, none is righteous. In chapter 10, none is righteous, not one. No one is righteous, not a single person on this planet is righteous apart from God. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. We see this repeated in the New Testament in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8-10. through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. For claiming to have sinned, then we're calling God a liar. Or, sorry, for claiming to have not sinned, then we're calling God a liar. This is a problem for mankind because according to Romans 1.18 that we looked at a while back, the wrath of God is revealed against heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Judgment is coming on the unrighteous. And there is no one who is righteous. This is a scary thought. This is a scary charge to bring. The second charge, no one understands. In verse 11, no one who is under sin is capable of understanding <clears throat> the truth of God. He cannot. He cannot understand that which is spiritual because he's spiritually dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, because he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The man who is spiritually dead then cannot discern that which is spiritual. His eyes have been darkened, his heart has been hardened, and his thinking has been made futile. He cannot understand. 
That was the second charge. The third charge he brings in verse 11 also is that no one seeks for God. The natural tendency of man is towards self. He does not seek after God and cannot seek after God unless he is drawn by God. Again, he is spiritually dead and thus cannot seek after that which is spiritual. John 6, 44 says, No one can come to me. In the words of Jesus, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. The fourth charge, verse 12, all have turned aside. We read this in Isaiah chapter 53 this morning, verse 6, during our reflection. We see that all we, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. We naturally wander We don't follow rules or directions. We're stubborn and like to do our own thing. We prefer our own way. This is the course of mankind. We wander, we we run, we want to do what we want to do. We don't like being told what to do. We don't like living under the authority of anyone. Since Adam and Eve in the garden, mankind has gone astray. Even us who are regenerated, by the work of the Holy Spirit, see in our own lives an inclination to leave God's way to pursue our own. We battle endlessly to suppress our own selfish desires and follow the Lord. This is the battle of the inward man that, Rome, that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7. Chapter 7, highlighting a few of these verses, starting in 15. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing that I hate. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what what I keep doing. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Guys, is that, does that ring a bell? Do we see that in our own hearts, our own lives, this battle waging between our own sin, this desire in us to leave? Even though we know the faithfulness of God, we know the truth of God. We know his love. We know all that he has done for us. And even us, as regenerate believers, struggle We daily battle with sin. We daily struggle to follow after our Lord. Luckily, there is an answer to his question of deliverance. In verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is the one who delivers us. He is the one who stands before the Father, interceding on our behalf. He is the one who makes us righteous before God. All praise be to God. And then following that in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We need to be reminded of this, right? It is hard. And guys, if we are struggling with that, imagine what the life of an unregenerate soul looks like. And we should be able to know because we've been there before, haven't we? Before we were saved, that was us all the, all the day long, except we weren't striving after God, we were striving after our sin. He brings a fifth charge. In verse 12, together they have become worthless or useless or corrupted, depending on what version you're looking at. Mankind in his natural state 
<clears throat> under sin is totally and completely unprofitable when it comes to producing that which is pleasing to the Lord. John affirms this in, in uh, John fifteen five, as Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul follows up that, that statement with Romans 8, 8, that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. As I think of, of something being useless or worthless or, or corruptible, I think of a, I get this image in my mind of, of a rusted out piece of metal. I don't know if, if you guys have had this experience this year as it, summer's rolled around and we start cranking up the barbecues. When I go out to my barbecue and I turn it on and I notice the little heat shield, the heat diverter down there, is rusted and full of holes and falling apart. So it no longer shields the flames from my food. It no longer has a useful purpose. It is no longer worth anything to me because it cannot fulfill what it has been designed to do. It cannot fulfill its purpose. This is the same image as I see here as, as God has created us for his glory. And yet in our sinful state, we cannot please him. We cannot honor him. We cannot glorify him. While we are under sin, we are completely useless. And he brings his last charge, the sixth charge. Also in verse 12, no one does good, not even one. Since the man under sin is spiritually dead, he is incapable of doing anything good before the Lord. That is not to say that unbelieving people cannot do good towards mankind. People can be generous and helpful. <clears throat> people can be loving and kind and caring and compassionate. They can go on humanitarian missions and go dig wells and, and build houses and all that kind of stuff. Perform life-saving surgeries. These are all good things for mankind. Jesus tells us in Luke, though, that even an evil man knows how to give good things to his children. And even sinners love those who love them but they cannot do anything spiritually good. They cannot do anything that pleases God because they cannot do anything for his glory. And thus nothing they do will please him. Hebrews eleven six affirms this in saying, without faith it is impossible to please God. And Isaiah 64 reminds us that even our best works are like filthy rags. The charge that no one does good is the complete antithesis of our culture today. Everyone thinks that they are good. Ask almost anyone on the street and they will tell you that they're good and that God would let them into heaven because they're good. We have a, a relative morality where I get to be my own judge of what is good and therefore I'm always good. Even if it doesn't match up with what other people say, what other people do. <clears throat> they're good according to their own standard, not God's. Even our modern, modern Jewish friends hold to this. They have the idea of scales. That my good just needs to outweigh my bad. I just need to do a few more good things than the bad things I've done and I'll be fine. Sadly, I think we do the same thing a lot. I, I feel like a lot of times we, we forget about our salvation in Christ, we forget about his work on the cross and we get into this mindset of, I just need to perform. Oh, I did something bad and I just got to do something to make up for it and I'll be good. But guys, this is not truth. This is a worldly thinking. This is something that, 
that bogs down the mind of an unregenerate soul where we just need to work and work and if I just work a little bit harder, then I can earn my way. We need the truth just like they do. Being good is a lie. No man is good enough or can be good enough to be saved. Salvation is by grace through faith. It's not of our own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no man may boast. Let's, in the midst of this heaviness, let, let's, let's hear that again. Salvation is by grace through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no man may boast. Guys, there is a salvation, and, and those of you who are regenerate have received that salvation Live according to it. Don't start putting yourself back under the law. For the law, as we've as we heard over the last few weeks, only leads to death, only leads to sin. Now let's listen to these same charges again, but this time we're going to go to Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3, where these charges come from. In Psalm chapter 14, verse 2, The Lord looks down from heaven, on the children of man, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They all have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Sounds familiar, right? That's, that's what Paul is quoting in Romans chapter 3. Ultimately, these charges aren't levied by Paul or even David, but they're levied by God himself. This is the reality of mankind as he looks down from heaven. No one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks after him. All have turned away and together become corrupted. No one does good. Mankind, both the Jew and the Gentile, does not have a positive outlook. Let's pause for a moment. At this se- as this section serves as one of the clearest scriptural basises and summaries of the doctrine of absolute inability. From what we have read, it is clear the condition of man and his natural state is spiritually dead and cannot do anything about it. I want to read from Ephesians 2 as we did this morning in verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Catch that again. Among whom we all once lived. This is where we were. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are dead in our trans transgressions. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Colossians 2.13 picks up a similar note that we were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. These six charges that we just heard as we we start talking about inability were true of us. This is who we were. Thus, since this is our former life before Christ, we need to empathize, we need to sympathize with the world, with our lost and believing souls out there. We don't say this, we don't go through Romans so we can wag our finger and condemn. And that's not Paul's purpose either. As he brings these charges forth, 
He's laying out the foundation that we have no righteousness apart from Christ. He's laying out the foundation to plead for the salvation of the Jew first and also the Gentile. He's laying out that the righteousness of Christ is the only thing that can save us. In both Ephesians and Colossians, we find that we are in our former state spiritually dead. And dead is dead. A dead man cannot make himself alive. If you think to the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11, as Jesus arrives for, uh, after receiving word from Mary and Martha that Lazarus had been sick, he finds that, that he had been dead for four days already and there's much sorrow and weeping because they've lost their brother. Jesus has lost a close friend. He says, if only you were here, you could have helped You could have healed him if only you were here. And Jesus says, I will raise him up again. And there's confusion about that. She says, oh, I I know he'll be raised up at the end in, in the final resurrection. Jesus says, no. And he calls Lazarus forth. Lazarus wasn't like sitting there just half asleep. He wasn't knocked out for a while. He was dead. He came forth because Jesus called him forth. Jesus, by the power of his words, raised him from the dead, took him from being dead and made him alive. As our hearts and minds are naturally corrupted by sin, sin has affected every aspect of our being and has left us completely helpless and hopeless. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We cannot bring ourselves to God. We cannot incline our hearts toward him. In fact, Jeremiah speaks of our hearts in 17.9, describes our hearts as being deceitful above all, all, all things and desperately sick. Titus chapter 1 tells us that the defiled and the unbelieving, going back to this idea, this, this total inability to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Proverbs 20 verse 9 rhetorically asks, Who can say that I have made my heart pure? Or I am clean from my sins? No one can. Jeremiah 13 23, Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard change his spots? Then also you, then also you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil? Another rhetorical statement, no. Just as one cannot change the color of his skins and an animal cannot change the pattern of its spots, so we who are evil cannot do good. We have no ability to raise ourselves from the dead. We have no ability to free ourselves from sin. We are completely unable to turn to the truth and seek after God. We're unable to stop rebelling against him. And not only are we unable, but we're unwilling. This is absolute inability. He who is spiritually dead cannot make himself alive toward God. From Romans 8, we see this this progression of living in the flesh. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is the purpose of Paul's indictment and charges. 
Paul is establishing that everyone, both the Jew and the Gentile, is under sin and thus are spiritually dead and unable to incline themselves toward God. They're unable to be righteous. They're unable to save themselves. Paul is painstakingly going through this argument to leave no loose ends so as to make sure that both the Jew and the Gentile understand that there is no righteousness. There is no salvation apart from Christ. And back in Paul's courtroom, now comes the evidence of man's sinful state. Look at verses 13 through 18. Paul then brings forth evidence that it's going to accompany these charges. His evidence serves to demonstrate how man's words, actions, and attitudes display the state of their unregenerate hearts. His evidence, once again, stems from the Old Testament. The first piece we see of their unregenerate hearts is through their words. Paul's going to use in the next couple of verses phrases that give picture to what our words would be. He speaks of the throat, the tongue, the lips, and the mouth. Verse 13 and 14, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Paul quotes from a collection of the Psalms to put on display that the chief outlet through which we display our sin is through our words. I feel many of us can relate to that. Whether it's foolish things that we have said or or the ways that we've been hurt by the words of others. Words are deadly and gives us two images of the perverseness of our sinful words. The first is an open grave. A grave would be closed to seal and sealed to preserve the dignity of the deceased, as well as keep out stench, rot, and disease. The speech of the natural man is that of an open grave. All those things, it takes away dignity. It has a rot, a stench, a decay, a disease, a death to it. A man's words reveal the decay that is in his heart. Matthew 12, we we see, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So our mouth gives truth to what is in our hearts. The second image he gives is, is that of a snake's venom. The effects of words are devastating on those who they're directed to and are full of curses and bitterness. There's no easy way to no easier way to identify sin than to listen to one's words. And James chapter 3 describes the tongue as a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we, cure, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessings and cursings. So my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Our tongues were made to praise our Lord but instead we use them to curse man. The very man whom God has created in his own image. We use our tongues to deceive, to curse, to kill. Man's words put on display often reveal a whole host of sin. And as many of you have experienced, it does not take long to find this put on display. For those of you who are ever on Facebook, reading comments, We see it on display all the time. If you read any sort of political article and look at the comment section at the bottom, 
You see the hatred, you see the deception, you see the cursing, you see the bitterness. Mankind's wickedness on display through their words. The second piece of evidence of the unregenerate heart is their actions. In verses 15 to 17, Paul says, Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruined and misery, the way of peace they have not known. Paul is quoting here from Isaiah 59. When looking at mankind, either as individuals or as a nation, we find a tendency toward strife, toward violence, war, destruction. Our world is marked by sorrow and pain, and there is no peace. The total depravity of mankind has touched every corner of our planet, has affected every human being, has affected everything that we do. Now, total depravity is not to say that man is as bad as they could be or that one man is as bad as any other man. But it means that every aspect of a person's nature has been polluted by sin. Thus, the effects of sin and everything that we do is tainted by that sin. And the final piece of evidence that Paul brings before their unregenerate hearts is their attitude toward God. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Again, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul is quoting again from the Psalms. But not only do we have this last piece of evidence, but it also is used as a summary of all the charges and evidence up above. There is no fear of God. This is the most serious of them all as it relates to how one positions themselves before God. It's a position of arrogance, of apathy, a general disinterest in, or, or an intentional unawareness of God. Proverbs 14, 2 goes on to say that it's, <clears throat> that this person is one who despises the Lord, has a hatred of God. This is what is characterized by those who do not fear God. Is also from this position before God that flow all the wickedness of man's hearts and minds. All the ones that we've mentioned previously and everything that we see in the world around us. It is indicative of the fool in both Proverbs and Psalms who says in his heart, there is no God. This last piece of evidence would be the most difficult for the Jew to hear as they would think back to the pillars of their righteousness, being chosen of God, possessing the law, boasting in Yahweh, knowing the will of God and having circumcision, being charged with not fearing the Lord reduces the entirety of what they held to utter hypocrisy. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. This was the charge against the Gentiles in chapter one, but it has fallen on the Jews as well. All are under sin. This attitude should cause us some concern as well. The greatest evidence of an unregenerate heart is no fear before the Lord, is not fearing God. We aren't talking about being terrified of God when we say this, but it's an honest reverence toward God, whereby we desire to please him, knowing that he is the source of both our security and our, and love. We need to be in awe and respect his majesty, especially through how we live before a lost world. All too often, we take this too lightly. We turn God into a casual buddy. 
We turn him into to my homeboy who is just cool with me because I'm cool with him. Well, that's not who our God is. We're to have a fear before the Lord, a reverence before the Lord that changes how we interact. One that, that directs the decisions that we make, the one that affects the choices we make. If we are living our lives disregarding God, then we have no fear of the Lord. And if we have no fear of the Lord, we need to keep in mind Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, that it is a frightening thing to fall into the hands of a living God, of the living God. That it's a danger. And we need to be aware. We need to be thinking through. This is ultimately what all mankind is condemned for. So we must be cautious ourselves. Now Paul goes through all this legal formality in order to leave the Jew without objection and to get to his larger and more central point. Because of sin, mankind is totally depraved, totally corrupted, and is absolutely unable to make himself right before God. Man is unable to save himself. Things are not looking good, but there is a blessed hope. We have a blessed hope. If we go back to Ephesians chapter 2, as we looked at formerly, we were dead in our transgressions. Right? We, were, we were just like the rest of the world. We are lost. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Going back to Colossians 2.13, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses. John 5 tells us, for as the father raised the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The only hope of salvation is in Christ. The only hope from going from dead to alive is in Christ. God is the one who starts. He makes us alive together with Christ. It is his work. While man apart from Christ is entirely corrupted and lacks any righteousness of his own, Christ is entirely righteous and imputes his righteousness to those whom he has called. As we wrap up this morning, there's a lot here that we need to process. Like I said before, this is a heavy passage. This is one that is not fun to, to read and go, oh, hey, that sounds great. Now we look at this and, and we should be, in a sense, filled with sorrow, knowing who we were before the Lord saved us but even more so being filled with a sense of desire and compassion on the lost. That this is where they were at, they are just like we once were and have a desire for them to know the word, to know the Lord. That we would be quick to share. So as we wrap up, as we process these things, all mankind is condemned under sin. Since man is dead in his sins, he is entirely and absolutely unable to incline himself toward God. We find from Paul's charges that none are righteous, none understand, none seek, and all have turned aside. Together, they've become worthless, and no one does good. 
So what does this mean for us? Where do we go with this? What, what is our application today? Well, first, we need to be serious about the gravity of sin. Paul is charging, as Paul is charging the Jews, we also need to look at ourselves. Are we still living as if we are under sin? We've been given many advantages. We have many privileges being believers in America. We have everything in our favor. We have the word. We can meet regularly. We can fellowship without persecution. We can study. We can go to Bible colleges like masters. We can go to seminaries and learn the word. But are we still living under sin? If so, we need to confess and repent and return to the Lord. We need to understand our true nature, our true heart before him and be battling every day to honor and glorify him. Second, we need to be prepared to engage the world that relies on being good to get to heaven. We know the truth. We need to know the truth well so that we can argue the truth, that we can present the truth, that we can answer objections with gospel truth, that we would be bold to engage the world that is dying, engage the world that is dead already. Third, we cannot rely ourselves on being good moral people. We cannot rely on being a good moral person for our salvation, but we must be living for Christ. That whatever we're doing is to be done in faith to the Lord. Remember, just being a good person does not save you. Don't put yourself under the law but put yourself under grace. Lastly, make sure that you are living in the fear of the Lord. That your decisions in life are being made with a thoughtful care on how you are living before your God. That you would be doing that which is honoring because of the Lord you love. Let's pray together. 